Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. This morning, our message is is one that I'm excited about. I, I feel like it's also one that um, maybe is one that we've probably heard quite a bit often, um, and even in the past few months. But it's where we are. Uh, where we are in the book of Nehemiah leads us to this conversation, a conversation about who we are in Christ and, and what that means for us, what the people of Christ are called to do. And I know some of us, as we um, hear that, uh, what the people of Christ are called to do, we can maybe push back a little bit with feelings of, uh-oh, he's going to tell me something that I'm already terrible at. Uh-oh, he's going to tell me something that I have to work on. Uh-oh, I'm already ashamed of that. I'm going to check out for a second. Please don't do that. I assure you that this is not a message about duty, um, but it is a message about worship. Um, And worship is something that uh, we don't put on our list, on our calendar, on our to-do list to accomplish and get out of the way. Worship is something that we are known by. It's one of our identifiers as people of Christ. It's really the primary signifier of who we are in Christ. So... um, if, if we kind of look back of, of where we are at um, in, the, in the book of Nehemiah, we're in the seventh chapter, and um, if you have one of those worship guides and looked at it before coming this morning, you probably noticed that we're covering pretty much the entire chapter seven of, uh, in the book of Nehemiah, and that's going to go through verses four through 73. So buckle in. We have 69 verses Um, But no, we won't be reading all of those verses word for word. Um, We're going to kind of jump around within there, um, but we're still going to accomplish the task of preaching this message exegetically, this this passage in the scripture. And what preaching exegetically means is that we're going to look into scripture to draw out of it meaning and purpose for our lives, to apply it to our context now. We aren't going to look, we aren't going to use our context to inform us of what the scripture says, but we're going to use the scripture to tell us how we should live. Oftentimes, that's going to mean that uh, we are called to do things that are countercultural, things maybe that we're not already doing, maybe things that don't come naturally to us, but this is the word of the Lord. Before we get into our passage, um, I want to kind of bring us into the full context of where we are at um, within the biblical narrative, as well as the specific book within Nehemiah. Um, Clayton in his sermon a few weeks ago pointed out that uh, the Jewish people have been in exile. Exile is not a good thing. The Jewish people had, had been committing generations and generations to ignoring God. They decided uh, family after family to go it, alo- go it alone. They turned their affections and their desires, their worship towards other gods. Religions and gods from the surrounding cultures that appeared to be more attractive, more helpful, more trustworthy than the creator God of their ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. And as a consequence of turning to these religions and gods and worship, the people, they turned their back on God. God allowed them to taste the fullness of what life looks like apart from him apart from his provision, apart from his protection, apart from his worship, what does life look like? 
And this is where the exile comes in. The kingdom of Babylon came into Jerusalem, destroying its walls, the temple, and reduced everything that provided them identity at the time to rubble and burned it to the ground. And for 150 years, the rubble remained rubble. Their hopelessness remained hopeless. And there was no sign that things were getting any better. They had a future promise that that God had given them that someday things would get better, but they weren't seeing it. The people of God, they had been scattered throughout Babylon and then Persia, separated from their culture. They were separated from their place of worship. The place where God had promised that he would be with them appeared to be in ruins. They were people that no longer seemed to exist, the people that no longer had identity. But God doesn't give up on them. He doesn't forget about them. He actually begins to move kingdoms in, on earth to bring them back together as his people. The book previous to the book of Nehemiah is the book of Ezra, and it tells the story of actually God placing on the king of Persia at the time, King Cyrus, they placed it on his heart to appoint a leader, a Jewish leader, and to fund the rebuild of the temple of God in Jerusalem. Another king being placed on his heart to worship the Lord. And this book, in the book of Nehemiah, it says that the king Artaxerxes, the Persian king at the time, gives Nehemiah access to forests, funds, quarries, food, wine, money, all in the hopes of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The very kingdoms that are responsible for holding the Jews in exile, in slavery, are the exact kingdoms who are spearheading the efforts to rebuild the cities at God's will. And that's wild to me. We can't even imagine what maybe... Um, China would do to rebuild or even identify their kingdoms that they've conquered or sometimes even our culture to rebuild the cities that we've conquered. But yet that's what God has led the Middle East to do here for God's people. And through God's bidding, the temple has been completely rebuilt through the faithful efforts of Ezra and the city walls, as Garrett shared with us last week, are finished. They're built. The work is done. At least the physical work is done. But you see, the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, they are both books that are about far more than the man whom they're named after. The book of the Bible, the entirety of it is far more than about the individuals listed in there. No, this book of Nehemiah, the book of the Bible, it's about a people, God's people, being brought back together as God is remaking them into his people once again. He's renewing them as a community set apart as his image bearers, a community saved out of exile and saved into reunion with their creator. The book of Nehemiah and all the Bible is about God's never-ending, unwavering love for his people, for you and for me. And God's will will be brought forth and his people will be united with him for his glory. And so while when we jump into Nehemiah chapter 7 today, it may just look like a list of genealogy, for most of it, it is. But I'm going to assure you that it's about much more than the list of names that are included in here. And so we'll be reading a few excerpts from this chapter. Like I said, I won't be reading all 69 verses in their entirety, 
Some of you may be disappointed because you would love to see me stumble through some of these names, and I still will, even though we won't cover the whole thing. But we're not skipping any part of this book to sidestep anything uncomfortable, any important topic. Really, we're sidestepping some of the specific names and the detail because they served a very specific purpose in their time, and they aren't as critical for us today. So with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to start with verse 4. And it says, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by their genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Remiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nehem, Banna, the number of these men of the people of Israel. And then it goes to list the families and how many people were in each family. We're going to skip down to verse 39. Up until then, it had just named uh, their names and their families, but here we have a bit of a change in verse 39. It says, the priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Emer, 1052, the sons of Pasher, 1247, the sons of Harim, 1017, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel and the sons of Hadova, verse 44, the singers, verse 46, the temple servants, verse 57, the sons of Solomon's servants. So we're going to go ahead and... um, jump into this. We'll read a little bit of the rest of it as we go forward. This section of scripture in the seventh chapter of Nehemiah, it marks a a turning point of sorts in the theme of this book so far. Up until now, much of the story has centered around Nehemiah and the building of the walls of Jerusalem, his leadership, the interactions that he's had with those opposing him, those who have been for him. But from this point forward in the book, We'll spend more time talking about who the people of God are. This is their, um, the change in the book is really a redefining of who they are, the people of God. And it'll center around renewing them to holiness, to a commitment to worship, to a love for one another, and to a devotion of being a unified, transformed community. And that's what we'll focus part of our time on today. Who are the people of God? which is what this book helps us to define, and what do the people of God do? So as Nehemiah has taken the first uh, steps to solidifying their identity as the people of God, re, um, re-identifying them as a culture and as a people, what does he first do? And if we look at verse 5, he does something that maybe is a little bit surprising to us. He takes roll call. Now, Maybe you might have memories of what roll call looks like. Could be a simple activity of when you're um, at an event or a workshop or something like that where somebody just says your name and you say here. 
You might have a, a, another memory, maybe a little bit fonder, where um, it's you racing your best friend from the monkey bars to your teacher at recess so that you can be the line leader and be the one who provides the roll call. Or maybe it can uh, be a little bit uh, less proud or maybe more proud for you of when you signed the roll call using a snicker-inducing name like Bobby Fisher or Turd Ferguson in high school or college. Yeah, I said Turd Ferguson. I assure you, though, that this roll call conducting, conducted by Nehemiah was far more con uh, significant than those of our youth. It's a very significant roll call. And this specific call of the role of the genealogies of God's people would help them define who the people of God were. God's goal and plan in rebuilding the, the temple and the walls in Jerusalem was to awaken the Jewish people to a sense of who they were. And God's plan for his people from the very beginning of time has been for his people to be in communion with him. Within the creation narrative, at the very beginning verses and opening passages of Scripture, we see that God's grand proclamation to the Godhead kicks off by this. Let us make mankind in our image. Unlike all of the other created things, the fish, the birds, the reptiles, the insects, the waters, the rock formations, the moon and stars, it was only mankind that bore the image of God. Humanity was created for that very purpose. We were created for that purpose, to reflect the creator to the rest of creation. And it was this very plan that God had communicated to Abraham when he made the first covenant with him. God told Abraham in Genesis 12 that God would bless the family and descendants of Abraham, that with this blessing from God, this covenant community, Abraham's family would bless the world, the entirety of it. Abraham's family and descendants grew and grew and became the Hebrew nation, the Jewish people, the people whose names, we skipped over some of them, but they're included here in Nehemiah 7. A people who would carry the name and character of God and bless the world as they have been blessed. And this detail about Abraham and his descendants is one of the reasons in particular that this roll call was a necessary next step. After all, the people of God had been split up and scattered all over Asia. And it would have been a challenge to know who was actually a part of this called out divinely blessed family. This family, by their covenantal nature themselves, had committed to walk in obedience, had committed to worship the only true God and to bear the label of family of God. These people had opted in hundreds and hundreds of years before, and this genealogical record keeper or roll call serves as both a reminder and a temperature check on those committed to the covenant. And they're all named by their family names. In total, more than 55,000 people and their family genealogies are present and accounted for as they were read aloud amongst the nobles. And this roll call does the work of both defining who it is that is part of the family of God, but also defining who is not a part of the family of God. It's important that those who are a part of the covenant community of God know who they are, are reminded of their centuries-long commitment to him, and are reacquainted with those who have also made that same commitment. It was a family reunion of sorts, this roll call. 
And we know that in our lives, our jobs, or other groups that we have been a part of, that this task of understanding who it is that's alongside of you is absolutely necessary. I'm sure we have all been a part of a community, a team, or another group of people who have a specific mission, goal, or task in mind that is unified, vulnerable, and known. A group where the strengths and weaknesses of the individuals have all been considered, where tasks and responsibilities are assigned based on strengths and weaknesses, a group that is appropriately resourced with the supplies, talents, and plan to accomplish the task, a group where there is open communication, you know who to reach out to and how to reach out to them when you need help, a group where you have had history and experience with one another, and you don't question the commitment of the group because they've proven it over time, a group where newcomers are welcome and allowed to find their place as they latch on to this vision and goal of the group. Kind of sounds like a thriving community. But we've also been on teams and in groups and probably even communities where those things were not at all present. A group that lacked unity, definition, a group that uh, you weren't sure who to go to or how to get a hold of them, or maybe you didn't even know who was part of the group. Maybe you've even experienced a group where newcomers came in with good intentions, but they didn't know how to get connected, and so they left. Or maybe a group where newcomers could come in, and because there was no defined culture, no identity, they were able to make it their own and circumvent the group. Obviously, we have been on teams, probably both types of these teams, types of groups, and it's also obvious that of the two groups, one is probably a little bit more purposeful than the other. Given it away, I described it as a thriving community. But I bring this contrast as an example because these theme, things are deemed critical for business and secular enterprise in our day, but they're also critical for spiritual ones as well. Ezra, Nehemiah, the nobles, and many Old Testament leaders knew long, long ago what our enterprising leaders know today. They know that they had to know who had bought in and who hadn't. Nehemiah, his leaders, and the whole of the 55,000 people named in this registry needed to know who they were serving alongside, who was on their team, who would be with them side by side in accomplishing the mission and vision of carrying the image of God to the nations through their culture and their actions. Maybe some of them needed to remember the commitment that their ancestors had made prior to their exile. Maybe during the exile, some of them had begun to question who they were and if God even cared about them. Maybe some of them had begun making decisions based off of the cultural norms of those around them in Persia. And we know that that is, in fact, the case. But this roll call served to call them back to who they were and what their identity was in. And I think that is something that is incredibly applicable for us this morning, both as part of the wider church but also as well here at Redemption Hill Church. Sometimes we need to be called back. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the call and our identity of who we are. Through the last nine years, my family and I have been a part of this particular local church body, Redemption Hill. The names and faces of hundreds of people come to mind if I take the time to think of them all, of who have graced these doors, sat in these pews, or not pews, uh, seats and chairs, who maybe was at the ark back in the day. If I add them up, it's probably hundreds. And the, the church 
The church of God is, is not just the name that we attach to it, but it's the people who make it up. And I can remember many times where it was, um, it was really easy to call in mind who was a part, who was serving alongside me. At different times, it's been easier than others, and it's not just because there were smaller numbers, whether it was 30 or 120. But I say sometimes it was easier to know who I was serving alongside, who had bought in because we were together. Both in MCs and on Sunday mornings, you knew who was going through what. You saw faces of those surrounding you on Sunday mornings in your MC. You knew who needed prayer, who had a question, who needed help with a physical need. But I'd say for many of us over the past couple of years, it's been more difficult and more difficult to see who it was that was with you. Whether it's separated from uh, distance because we are uh, using any type of uh, streaming needs necessary, sometimes it's been difficult. But over the past few months, there have been many who have returned to serve alongside. And I know many in my MC, the Dreyer MC and the Richards MC have felt and seen this return and excitement and enthusiasm for the mission of God that we are accomplishing together. Families named and known members of the covenant community who have stepped back into life. The Holy Spirit is bringing his people, bringing the people of God out of darkness, out of exile, out of isolation, and into the purpose of carrying his image out into the world. But the past few weeks, maybe you've looked around and you haven't seen the faces that you're used to seeing. Maybe you haven't seen some of those faces for two years. I'm not instructing you to look around today and notice who's not here as maybe somebody who is in exile. I know we have a lot of sickness right now, a lot of people at home watching this on the live stream. But I am pointing out that over the last couple of years, we have experienced that maybe we, it draws into question, is so-and-so still in exile? Do they need to be called out? Or have they chosen their lot with a different family to step out of this family. One of the functional ways that we attempt to take a similar roll call as Nehemiah did is here at Redemption Hill Church through the process of church membership. And the Bible doesn't prescribe the institution of church membership as necessary, but it does illustrate its forms. Church membership is in no way the ultimate judge of whether someone has been redeemed by faith or not. It is not the ultimate judge of, of calling uh, someone part of the family of God or not. But it is a way that we can implement, that we can reach out to and, and see who is serving alongside us so that we can establish who has buy-in. It's our means of communicating with and reminding our members what we have all been committed to. It is for you as a member to unify and be confident about who you are serving alongside. It is for the pastors to know who is committed to following Christ and who desires to work together to accomplish the church's mission and vision. 
I want to communicate clearly to you that the elders here, they care deeply for all of you. We pray for you, we weep for you, and we are excited to work alongside of you, our members, those of us who are serving alongside one another, to see our neighborhoods and city added to the kingdom of God. In the roll call conducted by Nehemiah, he not only addressed those who were bought in, who those who were there, but also he addressed those who weren't or who weren't yet. And the beauty of this proclamation of who was not included within the family of God at the time, and as well as for our time of, of those who have not yet chosen to be a part of the kingdom of God, those who have not yet submitted to the Father, is that there's a way forward. There is a way forward to be adopted into the family of God then. There's a way forward to be adopted into the family of God now. Entry into the family of God does not require any particular genealogical heritage or financial capital or benchmark of education or any other prerequisite. Being transformed by the Holy Spirit to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the redemption of your identity is for any and all. As Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 12 says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the who of our message today. Who is a part of the kingdom of God? Who is a part of the family of God? Everyone who believes in him. Everyone who calls on his name. Everyone who lays aside their identity as a person of whatever that you've attached yourself to, but you are part of the family of God. But what about the other part of the identity, not just the the who they are, but the what do we do? What does a member of the covenant of community do? If we look back at verses 39, 43, 44, and 46 in Nehemiah chapter 7, it lists specific roles, called out roles, within this roll call. And who are they? What's the common thread here? Well, they were the facilitators of worship. The facilitators of worship to God through singing and sacrifice and festivals were of the utmost importance to be called out in the reestablishment of their identity and the reestablishment of their culture. What does this tell us? That worship is at the very forefront of God's people's cultural identity. I do not believe that this text is saying that the people who play guitar or drums up here or keyboard are, in fact, more valuable than others. Sorry, I know that's a buzzkill for you all. In fact, all of the people, all of the 55,000 people are named by their families. They're all important, but it is telling that the professionals and roles named, the professions and roles named here are those specifically that are leading the people of God in worship. Let's remember that at that time in the Old Testament that the presence of God and the worship of him was centered around the temple, focused in one geographical place. In fact, the high priest is the one who went to God for you, the one. He alone could enter into the presence of God, a part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. He pled for the forgiveness of your sins as he spilled the blood of the sacrifice that you brought to him. 
He sought God for your favor to ask for blessing over your work and your family. Before Christ's death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit was held in a specific Ark of the Covenant and was rarely poured out onto a prophet. The high priest was their access point to God and communion with God was facilitated by these people of worship, the singers, the priests, the temple servants. But that's not the case for us today. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the curtain obstructing humanity from the holy God was torn and the spirit of God was generously poured out on all who believe and is still being poured out. The risen Christ now stands as our high priest who is the intermediary between us and God. The Lamb of God was the sacrifice for us so that blood no longer is required for us to sacrifice on the altar because Jesus poured his blood out for you and for me covering over all of our sin. Sin that we committed in mistake and on purpose. In the past and the present and the sin that he knows we will willingly commit or mistakenly commit in the future. We no longer require a human intermediary for our worship. We no longer require special chants or words or speeches before God. We actually don't bring him anything except for our nothing. And in return for nothing, he gives us everything. And that's where our worship comes out of. Our worship comes out of a gratitude of who God is and what he has given us in spite of our ability to provide nothing to him in return. Worship is the what do we do? We are to be a people of worship, a people who proclaim his goodness to him. And worship is the thing that asserts our identity as his. When we thank him for protecting us from different sicknesses, illnesses, or natural disasters, that's an act of worship. When we thank him for meeting our financial needs through promotion, the generosity of family or friend, or even government stimulus, that is worship. When we mourn our sin but accept his forgiveness freely given to us, that's an act of worship. When we attribute the growth in our hearts and lives, remembering that we have been more faithful, more zealous, or more encouraged today than we were three years ago, that is worship. That is the what of our message. That is the what of our identity today. Worship is what we do, and not just through the words of a talented artist who wrote it down for us, but also in your own words. Worship him. It is easy to prescribe a hundred different things that could point us towards God, point our hearts towards him, new habits that we could pursue, old disciplines that we can renew, 10 steps to being a really, really, really good Christian. But if we have lost our worship to God, we have misplaced our identity as his. It's our defining characteristic. We must be a people who put on our proper identity. Why is worship important? Have you ever been able to truly deeply care about something, but you never took the time to think about it? Have you ever been able to truly deeply care about something, but you never considered it worth your time? I mean, that sounds silly and impossible, but sometimes that's the strategy we try to implement with our faith, right? You must think about him. You must approach him to care about him, to start to look like him. 
Friends, I have heard many of you say over the past month or so that God has been showing you that you have been placing your focus, your attention, your affection on a lot of different things. Things that have mostly terminated on you, things that were for you, things that built you up for you, things that caused you to lose sight of your identity, all things that you had misplaced your worship on. And I've been encouraged to hear your stories. Your MCs have been encouraged to hear your stories and your testimony of God working in your hearts. Keep sharing that as an act of worship. You have found that you had misplaced your identity. And finding that out is the work of the Holy Spirit. And you were never alone in having misplaced your identity in the first place. There are others here who have misplaced it to the point that maybe you've considered it lost. Not just misplaced, but lost. And friends, if, if you're feeling that, if you're feeling that, that maybe it's not your identity to put on in the first place, I would say questioning that is a gift from the Holy Spirit. A tug at your heart that something isn't quite right is a call for you to lean into that, lean into the Holy Spirit, lean into him and ask God to help you that you don't understand why that is the case, but you know something is off. Friends, the enemy doesn't want you to feel that tug. It's called conviction. It's a good thing. But what the enemy does want you to feel is shame. He'd rather you hide the fact that this is even the case for you, that, that, you've, that you're even struggling with your identity in Christ. He'd rather you cover that up and run away from it. He doesn't want you to know that, that God has adopted you as his son or daughter. He doesn't want you to understand and believe that you bring nothing to the table. What he wants you to believe is that you have proven over and over again that you aren't worth his time. Friends, I have news for you. The enemy, the enemy of God, he doesn't win. He doesn't lose. He doesn't win. He loses, sorry. Don't believe what he is trying to tell you. The enemy wants you to lose too. If you have misplaced your worship, if you have misplaced your identity, identity, don't shy away from that. Share that with somebody. Share that with God. Share that with your MC. Press into that feeling of the Holy Spirit calling you back. Oftentimes, it can feel uncomfortable to talk about a spiritual warfare where an enemy is, is doing battle with good. Sometimes it feels uncomfortable to talk about judgment and what happens ultimately. It feels uncomfortable for me at times to, to preach about judgment or revelation or the enemy especially. That's kind of the Enneagram 9 in me coming through. Um, I get uncomfortable with passing judgment on anyone. But when it comes to preaching the word of God to you, I must preach the uncomfortable parts too. The parts that are difficult to reconcile. Otherwise, I'm just giving you my words and not the words of God. We've talked about many instances of roll call in this message. Some less important, less significant than others. But the roll call that Nehemiah conducted in Nehemiah chapter 7, the roll call that we attempt to kind of share a shadow of through church membership, those aren't the ultimate roll calls. There's one in Revelation chapter 20, and it's not about your high school attendance or being line leader. 
It's about ultimately who has bought in fully forever. It's the roll call of what's called the great white throne judgment. And on this day described in Revelation chapter 20, Satan and all who are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, whose names are not in the book of life, will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. But all who are covered by the Lamb, they will be ushered into a new heaven and a new earth to live in the presence, directly in the presence of a holy God forever for all of eternity where there will be no sadness, there will be no pain or sickness, no imperfection, no unrighteousness, where there will be beauty beyond imagination, riches beyond calculation, and worship without ceasing. That's what we worship towards. If you have bought into Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have bought into allowing him to cover over your sins in his blood, if you have bought into this identity that he has placed on you, then you have an even greater worship to experience that is not limited by what we can do here today. Friends, I pray that, that you would seek God and worship him. That as a people of God, that we would choose to lay aside the objects of our worship that are fleeting and are short-sighted, and I invite you to worship the creator of the universe whose love for you caused him to sacrifice his most precious son, placing all of the punishment for your misplaced worship on Jesus. He accepted your sin. Friends, I, I encourage you to come out of exile and into life in Christ. Our worship today carries so much more weight than our present circumstance. Our worship now carries with it the promise of a future worship where it won't be just those in this room singing aloud together, but multitudes and multitudes, billions and billions of believers from all of history, from every country and language, singing in unity the wonders of our great God.